listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Today's scripture is Matthew 5, 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This be the word of the Lord. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to a Family Worship Sunday. It's exciting to have some of the kids in here with us today. I'm going to need you guys to be a little responsive for me this morning because all of the adults went camping, it looks like. And uh, so in order to like, get a real good sense of, you know, there's people in here, I'm going to call on you kids to interact with me. So I don't know if some of you guys have heard this before, but I'm the first of five boys. I've got four younger brothers. And I, yeah, it's, it's rough. It was rough at times. Um, rather than tell a specific story about what our childhood was like, I just, I'll give you sort of a representative example. And I'm really curious if this was ever true in your homes. Uh, so I'm making up this story, but it, that's only because it happened a thousand times, and so I can't narrow it down to any, any one thing so, or any one instance. So I and one of my brothers are building Legos together, okay? Did you guys do this, kids? Okay, great. So we're building Legos together, right? And my brother is hogging all of the red pieces. You know how that goes. So I, in order to get back at him for what he's doing, I told him that what he's building looks dumb. Totally fair, right? And then he reached over and knocked what I was building out of my hands. So then I reached over and smashed what he was building. And then he lunged at me to start hitting me. And I rolled him over and pinned him to the ground and sat on him and wailed on him until my mom came in and pulled me off and said, wait till your father gets home. Does that sound about right? Okay, you've all experienced that, right? So here's my question. This morning, it happened this morning, I believe it. I totally believe it. There's plenty of time to get into a fight before church and then to put on your smiles in the car on the way here. Pretend like you love each other. Why do you guys think we're all so good at being offended? Why are we all so good? Not just kids, but even as adults. Why are we so good at being offended and overreacting and going further than maybe we should? Why is it that we're so good at making things right that they really quickly go wrong? Well, that's the question that uh, Jesus is addressing in the passage you just heard there in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. Now, to remind you, we're in this section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he's giving us six sort of representative interpretations of Old Testament law. So six times he's quoting a law from the Old Testament and then teaching us how that law was intended to transform our hearts. It wasn't supposed to stop with just external behavior, but was supposed to go deeper, was to change 
who we were and what we loved in this world. See, each time Jesus is talking about one of these things in these six sections, he's not getting rid of that old law. He's fulfilling it. He's showing us what it really looks like to live it out in relationship with God while we wait for his kingdom to come back to earth. Every one of these, I call them intensifications of the Old Testament law, are are designed to show us what true, like whole person righteousness looks like. Not just acting right externally, but seeking after virtue, heart-level righteousness internally. And that applies to these verses we just heard just as much as applies to any of the other of these six sections where Jesus asks us to consider these questions. Why can't we respond well when we're offended? Why do we keep burning things up into this cycle of revenge and retaliation? Why do we keep doing it even when we're adults? with much greater consequences. So we're going to jump into figuring out, now just what is Jesus talking about here in these five verses? We'll take a few moments here to try to understand the original law in its original context, and then how it was applied and even misapplied in Jesus' day. Before we look at how Jesus takes this law of retaliation and calls us to something higher, the, the law of virtue, where it's better to be righteous than to be right. So kids, if you're writing anything down, write that one down. It's better to be righteous than to be right. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Let's jump in and pick up in verse 38. It, Jesus begins each of these six explanations of the Old Testament law in the same way, some variation on the phrase, you have heard it said, or you've seen it written, something like that. And then he quotes a law that shows up three times, three different places, in the Old Testament. And he quotes kind of a shortened version of it. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, Jesus doesn't quote the whole law, but he quotes enough of it to bring the whole law back to mind for us. Here it is in its fullest form. The whole law reads, but if there is harm, in other words, if, some, if somebody harms you, then you shall pay life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe, fracture for fracture. You must not show pity. Whatever injury he has given a person will be given to him. That sounds pretty rough. But there's a few things we need to keep in mind as we understand or try to understand this old law, what's a, a law that's sometimes called the lex talionis, the law of retaliation. For the ancient Israelites, we have to remember, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, this law was a good law. It served to reduce violence, to make sure that the punishment for things done was limited in its application, in its extent, and limited in its sphere that didn't happen just anywhere. See, the law of an eye for an eye was designed to prevent things from escalating out of control, like this morning before church. You know it's all too easy for revenge to get out of hand, for the one who is passionately seeking to make things right, if he hogs the red pieces, then of course I'm going to insult his creation. It's so easy for the one who's trying to make things right to go just a little bit too far or for the well-intentioned response to turn violent. 
before you know it, the punishment is worse than the original crime and the spiral of violence and destruction results. You can imagine how this could go down in a society, especially a society like the Israelite culture that's very focused on honor and shame. Two people get into an argument. The, the argument escalates. One of them hits the other, disfigures the other, something, you know, causes some sort of injury. Well, the one who's injured, he and a few of his friends or some of his family go back and attack the first one. And this time, instead of just knocking him upside the head, they knock off his head. And then that guy and his family respond by going back. And instead of just taking out one head, they take out multiple heads. And then they, you, you see how it starts to spiral out of control. Where does it stop? Well, if instead of exacting revenge themselves and going too far, if the original you know, injured party had instead appealed to the legal authorities and they had applied this law of respond with a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a, a wound for a wound, then that would have been the end of it. The punishment fits the crime. So an eye for an eye, this is a good law because it's restrictive. Limited family feuds, intertribal warfare, all of these things. And very specifically, we need to remember in the, when it's given in the Old Testament, it is not given for personal use. This isn't a law for me to enforce and apply to others. It's supposed to happen within the proper sphere, within the governing and legal authorities. It's given to the Jewish people as a nation, not to the individuals. That's in the original context. By the time we get to Jesus' time, we've got lots of different law writings and things that show that the understanding of this law had kind of shifted from being understood as primarily restrictive, don't go any further than this, to primarily prescriptive, here's how far you must go. And it had moved from the realm of society to the realm of the individual. So no longer was it, you know, the legal punishment can only go this far to an eye for an eye. Now it was, you must personally take it this far and make sure you get your eye for an eye. So rather than seeing the law as the, as the limit that authorities could impose, people saw the law as, as the extent to how far their own personal retaliation could go, how much they could fight back without getting in trouble. So if my brother broke my Legos, I could break his and I shouldn't get in trouble, Right? I mean, never mind that the right thing to do was to tell one of my parents and let them take care of it as the proper authorities and all that. I could argue that smashing his Legos is only fair. That's what he did to me. An eye for an eye, a Lego for a Lego, right? Well, that's how Jesus' society saw this law, the lex talionis, the eye for an eye. The law of limited retaliation had turned into the right for full retribution. So it's into that world that Jesus shows up and says, you know, I know you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, look at verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And do you see the contrast right away? In a world that had taken a corporately restrictive law and turned it into a personally prescriptive one, Jesus says, hey, let me offer an alternative way or a different idea of what truly righteous living looks like. It's not about your rights. It's about your righteousness. 
So look at his command. Verse 39, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, keep in mind, as we look into this and try to understand what it means, Jesus is not challenging the Jewish legal system. He's not overturning a law or prescribing a new way to make sure justice is enacted within a society at the, at the you know, whole nation level. He's not coming up with new governmental regulations or saying you know, that law enforcement entities should no longer make sure the punishment fits the crime. What he's doing is offering his followers a new ethical principle that is greater and deeper than the merely legal principle. In other words, he's saying, look, if you're one of my followers, there's a new set of attitudes, a new set of behaviors that you need to embody at the individual level. If you are part, if you're one of these people, if you're part of these gatherings of people who are following me, here's how you interact with one another. No longer insisting on your rights, but striving for righteousness. Now this, this is a hard, hard teaching. But Jesus is pointing us to a righteousness that is greater than self-justice. He's pointing us to a righteousness that depends on God being the judge, on God being the one who will come in and make everything right. It's a righteousness that can resist retaliation because it's living in anticipation of the kingdom of God returning to earth, of God coming back to earth and making all things right. So this, his call to us isn't the, the lex talionis, the law of retaliation. It's the lex virtutis, the law of virtue, the law of righteousness. So look at Jesus' command again, verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, notice he doesn't say, do not retaliate against the one who is evil. He says, do not resist. That's a wider command than simply, do not retaliate. It implies a, a willingness to accept ill treatment, uh, even to comply with being ill-treated if necessary. In this teaching, what Jesus is resisting is that heart attitude in us that insists on getting back. When we've been wronged, how many of us, I'm going to ask for audience participation now, when you've been wronged, how many of you, your knee-jerk first reaction is to get back? And leave your hand up if you always go too far. Right. What Jesus is pushing against here, you can put your hands down now. What Jesus is pushing against here is that, that heart attitude that insists on retribution, that justice is not done until someone is punished. It is not right until it has been made right. That attitude within us that demands satisfaction for wrongs or demands that our rights be acknowledged and respected. To that attitude, Jesus says, well, actually, you have to be willing to accept ill, even go along with being poorly treated if necessary. This is a whole upside-down nature of blessing, of what it means to grow in righteousness in God's kingdom. If you were here a month or two ago, you may remember as we read in the Beatitudes how everything seemed to be upside down. The kind of life in which God says we flourish, a life where we're in mourning— where we're forced to show meekness, where we have to make peace, where we're persecuted and reviled and made fun of and spoken evil of, it's a life like that 
in which we grow in righteousness. That's the good soil in which we plant ourselves in order to grow in our relationship with God as we wait for his kingdom to come. That's just, that's upside down. And we get echoes of that in here where Jesus seems to be telling us that maybe the right thing to do is to let yourself be wronged. Maybe the just thing to do is to not seek justice for yourself. Now that, that's confusing, and you, you know, if you're with me, uh, or if you're doing what I'm doing, you're going, okay, well, what does that look like, Jesus? And he gives us four kind of representative or illustrative examples or potential applications for what that might look like in someone's life. Now, his four come right from his time and what life looked like right then. We have to think this through for what it might look like in our own lives, but the ones that Jesus gives here at least show us or give us some categories in which to think that the follower of Jesus is more concerned about righteousness than they are about personal honor or insult. That they're more interested in righteousness than their personal rights. More interested in righteousness than they are in their personal property. Uh, Pick it up there at the end of verse 39. He says, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And now he gives examples. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That's example number one. Number two is, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And number three, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And number four, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. These are four illustrations, four ways of applying his command in his own context. In other words, you know, he's answering the question, okay, so Jesus, what would it look like uh, in our lives if we didn't insist on a strict, you know, tit for tat, eye for an eye type of justice, but instead we learn to step back from being wronged and see through the wrong to the person who wronged us and seek their good in this situation? What would it look like if we, you know, lived as citizens of heaven waiting in confidence and in the peace of knowing that when God brings heaven back to earth, he's going to make all things right, even without us insisting on it ourselves or insisting on doing it ourselves. All right, so Jesus gives four potential applications. We'll look at them in turn. First is turn the other cheek. Jesus says, if if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, to be clear, this is not about how we respond to violence. It's not a call to pacifism or a command to nonviolence. In the Jewish culture, and even today in many Eastern cultures, striking someone on the cheek with the back of your hand, as is pictured here in this, expresses the, one author says, the greatest possible contempt and extreme abuse. There's nothing worse you can do to a person to personally insult them and dishonor them in their culture than this backhanded slap to the right cheek. So when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he's saying, hey, when you are personally insulted and dishonored, then turn the other cheek as well. Be ready and willing to take a slap on the other side also. Don't stand, on, uh, your, don't stand on your honor and insist that your honor be respected. See, it's not 
so much about being willing to suffer physical abuse or about the ideal of nonviolent resistance. It's about how a follower of Jesus has to be willing to suffer personal insults and contempt without insisting on responding in kind. Without insisting that the person who dishonored you be dishonored to the same extent, or preferably more. Without insisting on insulting the person that insulted you, you know, burning them right back, only even more vicious. Without insisting that everybody know the real truth about the person who told the truth about you. You know, to turn the other cheek is to be willing to say, my personal honor, your respect for me doesn't matter to me as much as God's righteousness matters. And he's going to sort it all out in the end. I don't need to get hung up on sorting it all out now. So followers of Jesus have to be willing to take an insult and move on without retaliation, even on social media, to take it and move on. Well, let's move on to the second one. First one's about personal honor. The second one is more about personal rights. Look at verse 40. Uh, If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, it's unlikely, this is a bit hyperbolic, because it's unlikely that uh, people were suing each other over, you know, a set of clothes. Uh, That's the, uh, the tunic part of here refers to kind of your basic set of clothes. And the cloak was a, uh, a heavier garment worn over the top of your basic set of clothes. And according to the law at Jesus' time, you couldn't sue someone for their cloak. Right? So say somebody owed you money and they couldn't pay you back. You could confiscate everything they owned except the cloak. You had no right to their cloak because, well, for humanitarian reasons. You needed to leave them something to wrap up in at night so they didn't, you know, freeze to death. Uh, So you couldn't touch their cloak. But Jesus says, hey, if someone comes after you and wants to take what's yours, be willing to give them even the things you have a legitimate legal right to hold on to. Be willing to even give up your cloak if if that's what's necessary. So I think the point of Jesus saying, hey, and let them have your cloak as well, is to say that those who are following him don't feel this need to insist on their rights. Followers of Jesus will be content to give up even things they have a clear legal right to. We'll be willing to, to do without, willing to have our rights violated because being righteous is better being right. Now to the third, verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now in in New Testament times, Roman soldiers had the authority to force civilians into their service to make them carry their stuff for them, but only for a specific prescribed distance, 1,000 paces. It's translated here as one mile. So there's a limit to how much you could be imposed upon as an ordinary citizen. And, but even though there's a limit, I mean, the Jewish people still resented uh, the imposition, right? It, it shows that you don't have control over your own life. Others can dictate and impose on you. So any self-respecting Jew, when forced into service like this, would count out exactly 1,000 paces and give not an inch more which sounds just like me when I was a kid. But Jesus says, 
hey, look, if you get forced into going a mile, go two. Now, he's not saying go two, but not an inch more. Right? He's saying, look, if you're imposed upon, that's fine. Double the distance. Go the extra mile. Give more than you are asked to give. Don't let yourself feel like you're being imposed on. Don't get irritated. You're not being personally insulted. And besides, say, so you go an extra mile. You go two extra miles. God will sort it out in the end. You don't have to die on this hill or insist on your right to not be imposed on any further than the legal limit. God's going to make it, he's going to work it out in the end. So if you're a follower of Jesus, living in anticipation of the kingdom coming, of God bringing the kingdom of heaven back to earth and making all things right, then we have no problem giving more than is demanded of us. We have no problem putting up with more than we are legally obligated to put up with. Because there's a greater and a more beautiful righteousness than insisting that no one can take more from you than you are legally obligated to give. Which, of course, leads right into the fourth one, verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, commentators have been quick to point out that, uh, look, it doesn't say give what is asked to you, but give to the one who asks of you. There's some wisdom that needs to be applied here. If the homeless guy in the Walmart parking lot asks for the keys to your car, Jesus isn't saying you have to give it to him. That wouldn't be loving to him or you and wouldn't be just. But you also don't look at the guy and say, get away. There's nothing I can get from you, so I'm not going to give anything to you. In this passage, what what Jesus is is pointing out is he's not going to put up with a a tight-fisted attitude that looks at any possible exchange of goods with a, okay, but what's in it for me perspective. Followers of Jesus are supposed to be generous. And okay, so you give and they don't pay you back. Okay, so you give and you don't get anything back in return. What does it matter? God's going to make it right in the end. There's a righteousness that is greater than just insisting that you get that 7% return. So give, and don't refuse the ones who want to borrow. Now, these are just four examples. Four of probably many examples of what it could look like to let go of the personal need to retaliate. That knee-jerk response we all have to when we're offended or when we're imposed upon or when we're taken advantage of or when we're dishonored to immediately lash back, to retaliate. These are just four of the ways this could live out. Only limited by our imagination when as followers of Jesus we're living in anticipation of the kingdom of God coming back to earth knowing that God will set all things right. What does it matter if we're wronged, when God is going to set everything right. So, to boil it down to just that one big idea I said earlier, it's better to be righteous than to be right. Whether you're an eight-year-old whose pride and joy of a creation was just smashed, or you're an adult who was dishonored or imposed upon or finding yourself in some other way subjected, it is better to be righteous than to insist on your rights. 
Or to put, put it the opposite way, if we insist on everything being legally right, then we're likely to miss the opportunity to be righteous. It's better to be righteous than to be right. Now let's talk about how, how this might actually play out in our own lives. I, I'm, I'm going to resist the temptation to give specific examples of when this happens, you should do this, and when th- that happens, you should do that, because that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's giving like these hyperbolic examples to get us to think through, okay, well, how would that work in, in my context? How would that work here when I'm obsessed with personal honor or personal property or personal rights? See, on the one hand, we don't want to downplay the, the high calling of these verses, but we also don't want to fall into the trap of sort of literalistically reading them as hard and fast rules. When you absolutize them, you make them ridiculous, and you end up naked when people ask to borrow your clothes. That's not the point. This teaching is inviting us into, as we've said about the whole Sermon on the Mount, it's inviting us into wise growth in whole person righteousness. Right? It's showing us a vision of, of virtue, of a, a way of being in the world that forms us into a different kind of people. If we took seriously what Jesus said here and thought about how do I work this out in my own life, and we practiced it in the really obvious examples like these, well, then maybe in the not-so-obvious stuff, we wouldn't be quite so quick to knee-jerk respond with getting back. But would be willing to, to step back and let go. So, a few thoughts as we think about how this might work out in our own lives. First, it's difficult, uh, and the history of interpretation on these passages has been so interwoven, it's difficult to pull apart, okay, what is Jesus saying to me as an individual, and what is he saying to us as a society? So it's important to recognize he is not overturning the sort of society-level governing principle of lex talionis, of an eye for an eye, of proportional response. You know, punishment needs to fit the crime. He's not pulling back from that. He's saying for us as individuals who are following him, who exist in these smaller communities of families and churches, how are we supposed to relate to one another? Like this. Don't insist on your rights when you've been wronged, but exercise righteousness. Which means, again, trying to pull apart or tease apart the personal from the sort of whole societal. These verses are calling us to be willing to give up our own personal rights as we interact with one another. Calling us to allow ourselves to be insulted and imposed on. But that doesn't mean that we no longer fight for the rights of others. Or that we no longer insist on justice being done for our neighbors or that we don't take a a firm stand on matters of principle. But as we do it, we have to do it with an attitude that refuses to insist on our own rights, however legitimate those might be. Because, right, we do advocate for justice, while also recognizing at the same time that even the best systems of justice that humans can come up with are still going to fall short of delivering perfect justice, whether for ourselves or or others. 
But as the Sermon on the Mount keeps continuously reminding us, because there is a God whose kingdom is coming and who, when he comes, will deliver perfect justice on every wrong in our world, then we can endure injustice done against ourselves and against others now without falling into despair on the one hand or without overreacting on the other hand and giving into that desire for personal revenge. Well, if they won't do what's right, then I'm just going to make them hurt. Okay, so even while we work for justice and we advocate for people's rights, we do so knowing that we will not be successful. Never completely successful, no matter how hard or how well we work. Rather than despair or retaliate, we wait with hope that God will make it fully right, even while we can't right now. So that's part of teasing this apart. Now, how does it apply to us as individuals? Well, third, I want us to keep in mind this is very difficult to figure out on your own, right? Because on my own, I can justify just about anything and just about any response. Oh, no, I didn't intend to hurt them. I was just trying to get them to see how they were wrong. We, we have to work this out and think through wisely using, uh, one author calls it, localized wisdom. How, does, how do these principles apply in our own specific lives and circumstances? We have to think this out in a group, in a small group, in a church, in a family, in a community, or we're very likely to get quickly way too far into the retribution side or the revenge side and not in the virtue side that is reining in the desire to get back. So we have to help one another live this out and call one another out when we're not. We can't do it on our own. Fourthly, these are just, you know, four thoughts on how we apply this in our own lives. As we work this out, look, we have to remember, okay, we're living in a world that is increasingly less interested in Christian or Jesus-like righteousness. Right? A world that is less interested in the morality that Jesus gives us. If in that world we continue to insist on our rights, our right to be at the table, that we, we should not be mistreated, ill-treated, whatever, like, okay, yeah, we, we have those rights. But if we continue to rely on and insist on and stand on those, we're likely to miss the opportunity for righteousness within what we're experiencing, as we seek to leverage our rights to get out of what we're experiencing. What Jesus is telling us in these verses is that when we decided to follow him, we gave up our rights. We gave up our right to retaliate, our right to revenge. We gave up our right to our possessions, our time, our money, our honor, our fill-in-the-blank. Because there's something greater and deeper and higher and more beautiful than being right. It's being righteous. Because just like Jesus, personal self-sacrifice replaces personal rights. That's the way that he went. All the way to the cross. Now, we're about to take communion together, and both this passage and the regular exercise of communion invite us to consider living in the way of the cross, 
rather than in the way of insisting on our own rights, on justice being done for us. Now, we don't know how many times in his ministry Jesus preached on this topic. Uh, we don't know how, what other applications he may have shared or what other illustrations he might have used. But, but these four that Matthew made sure to include in his telling of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, these four invite us to look forward in the story to see how Jesus lived these out. We see a Jesus who, when he was struck, didn't strike back didn't retaliate or insist on defending his personal honor, right? We, we follow the Jesus who, when his tunic and his cloak were stripped from him, did not insist on his rights, but hung naked on our behalf. We follow in the way of the cross, the one who went to the cross, the one who, when forced by Roman justice to carry his own cross for a mile, went a second and ultimately went all the way into the grave and back out again, enduring that pain and not seeing it as an imposition, but as the source of our joy. I mean, we follow the Jesus who kept nothing, gave everything, wasn't stingy, and didn't give us his riches, the spiritual blessing of riches in Christ, wondering, what's he going to get out of it? But gave everything so that you and I in our poverty could be made rich. There's nothing in these five verses, nothing that Jesus is asking us to do that he has not already done himself. And he didn't resist the evil done against him. He didn't seek his own vengeance. He trusted himself to his Father. And because he walked the way of the cross, he calls us to do the same. Even as we wait for the day when the kingdom comes. So I'm going to pray for us, and then the servers are going to distribute the elements for communion. Please hold on to them. We'll all partake of them together. But as you hold them and as we sing, I want you to think about this. The way of the cross or the way of my rights? What is Jesus calling me to? How do I live that out? Father, you call us to hard things. Through your Son, you call us to a greater righteousness than even the Pharisees, whose righteousness was only skin deep. Father, I pray that you uh, it would work in us as we behold the glory of your Son on the cross in the redemption he purchased for us, that in beholding his love for us, our very hearts and desires would be transformed so that we no longer desire to retaliate to get back, to get even, to get what is ours. But desire instead to do what is right, what is righteous. And so make more of what is right in this world. Father, transform us, we pray. With the power of your spirits and the image of your son in us. Amen.